0: Are you ready for good talk? And of course, you're ready for good talk. I'm Peter Mansbridge, Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson, both with me, and we've got uh, we got a kind of a packed agenda here. We got a lot of different topics we want to get at in the next uh, hour. So let's get let's get started. We we'll get started on. Um, on the big story, which was south of the border this week, the midterm U.S. elections, and what impact, if at all, it has on Canada and the way this country operates, the way some of this country's political leaders operate. The assumption going into the midterms, as you all know, because history has kind of dictated this almost every time, that the, um, the party out of power would do best in the midterms and the party in power would lose. Well, to some degree that happened, but nowhere near the degree that it was expected to happen. It looks like at this moment that the Republicans will regain the House of Representatives by a couple of seats, and it looks like at this moment, although it could change because there were a couple of runoff elections, that the Democrats should hold on to the Senate. But uh, once again, the underlying factor is that there was Not a huge shift. At one point, they were talking of more than 60 seats changing in the House of Representatives uh, going to the Republicans. That didn't happen, didn't even come close. And the finger pointing is going on, and most of the fingers are pointed at, you guessed it, Donald Trump. Even though he wasn't on the ticket, he wasn't running, but he had endorsed a number of candidates, many of whom lost. So let's bring it back to the message here for Canada was there a message for Canada does it make any difference for Canada this new alignment that looks like it's shaping up in the US does it make any difference on the political front in terms of uh, the future for certain politicians in this country who may have hooked their wagon to some of the things that were being said by the Republicans you know what I'm suggesting there so let's see Chantal why don't you start.
1: Okay, well, uh, in the general political sense, uh, probably good news for Canada in the sense that uh, Canada and the U.S. at this point are aligned uh, more or less on climate change and on Ukraine, and uh, a a stay-the-course prospect is is probably uh, the best thing that uh, the Trudeau government could hope for. I think there were lots, and on, on the partisan side, I think there were more Messages, lessons, uh, ominous messages, possibly for Pierre Poilievre and for Justin Trudeau. Uh, When an unpopular incumbent holds his own in a time of economic turmoil, it's uh, always reassuring for the incumbent who is uh, eventually going to be running for re-election in this country. But I think the first. There are many lessons, but I think the first lesson is Pierre Poitier has tried to make the economy, the economy, the economy, his only message to just about the exclusion of any other uh, topic, thinking uh, that he would get to victory in 24 Sussex via the pocketbooks of Canadians. Well, set aside the fact that if the economy takes a turn for the better in a year uh, and the election doesn't come for a year and a half, then everything that is Justin Trudeau's fault today will be something that he has magically fixed tomorrow. But it was um, Dan Robertson who ran Aaron O'Toole's campaign uh, who said quite rightly that uh, what this shows is that conservatives can't win just on the economy and on pocketbooks because people, voters, vote also uh, for values. Uh, and they will not, and And he felt, uh, as a conservative, that what the midterm showed is that people will not set aside or become blind to values just because they have pocketbook issues. And that should be a warning uh, to Pierre Poiliev and his team among Many other things uh, that happened that kind of say you want to associate with people that most people feel are off uh, the political grid. You may be losing votes as you gain votes in the fringes.
2: Bruce. Yeah, that's really interesting. I agree with a lot of Chantal's points more than the usual eighty-five percent. Um, so, <laughs> I-, I wanted to draw out four four things that occurred to me. One was the you know a reminder in particular to be careful for those who want to predict election outcomes based on polls, which are softer and a little bit more fluctuating in some respects a little bit more stable in other times because people are paying more or less attention and because at the end of the day you don't know who's going to turn out to vote all of the turnout uh, models that have been used have sometimes worked sometimes been off and this time they were a little bit off i think because there was a uh it's hard for the modelers of turnout to anticipate how many young people are going to turn out to vote, how many women are going to turn out to vote mobilized by the abortion decision that was made by the Supreme Court. So uh, I'm watching the U.S. media talk about the outcome of the election, and there is a lot of, well, it's it's usually not a, a media organization criticizing itself, but criticizing other media organizations for having had this conventional wisdom that the Republicans were going to have this red tide, which they didn't in the end. Um, The second thing is, young people, Um, is it uh, it written in stone that young people will always vote in lower numbers than older people? Um, We had an election in 2015, which said, no, it's not written in stone here. Uh, I think that the data that I'm seeing now suggests a fair number of young people turned out, maybe an unexpectedly high number of young people turned out. If so, that's great, uh, but it also, uh, it's great for democracy, but it also rewrites some of the thinking uh, on the part of campaigners in the next round of elections about what it is that's possible to do in terms of inspiring young people with a message and a set of policy ideas. The uh, The third uh, was uh, the whole question of abortion. And I think there is a message for Canadian conservative politicians in this, which is that there's always this tension we know in the conservative caucus between a whole lot of MPs who would rather, if they if they could, if the leadership would allow them to, be more pro-life, more actively pro-life. Uh, the leadership of the party has pretty consistently said we're not going to go there because we see the ceiling uh, in terms of how many votes we can uh, we can accumulate, and of course those who defend the Conservative Party on this issue are very fond of saying, well, you can't judge them as being a pro-life party because they never do anything with that instinct. Uh, But I think that there's now maybe going to be a little bit of a different debate uh, about what the risks are politically, uh, and maybe it will equip the leadership that really doesn't want to go in that direction with uh, some data. But the last and the biggest impact, I think, is I believe that the election in the U.S. ended up becoming not a question about are you happy with the status quo or do you want change, which is normally what fuels the out-of-office party, but it became a question of how crazy are the Republican candidates going to be? Is that a race to some sort of finish line uh, that so excites the far reaches of the base, but so alienates a lot of other people that they don't know where it's going to end and in the 24 48 hours since then you can see a whole lot of people in the u.s republican party grabbing onto the opportunity to say we don't want any more trumpism we want to get away from this election denialism we want to move in a different direction we want to be back a little closer to the mainstream i don't want to overstate uh, how durable that is but Trump had a terrible day yesterday, and Trumpism had a terrible week this week, and that might mean that for the Conservative Party in Canada, it's a cautionary tale, uh, and uh, and and for Mr. Poliev in particular, having a new high-profile staffer who's a you know pro-convoy person, these uh, these reverberations can't be ignored by them and i'm sure they're not ignoring them i'm sure they're thinking this through and wondering has the tide and the temperature maybe turned a little bit uh,
1: well, sorry maybe, for how they, that was. maybe they are maybe they aren't but on abortion i've long talked that the uh, rovers v wade and what happened to it uh has made abortion an even more sensitive issue and an even more risky issue for the conservatives it has cost them votes in the past. It dogged Andrew Scheer, uh's campaign and to appoint Erin O'Toole's campaign. And it will again, because ambiguity on this issue is not something that uh, many female voters will not put up with. Uh, the, the, the notion that there is a strong contingent, most of whom supported Pierre Poiliev for the leadership, who are identified with the pro-life movement, who are certified the pro the anti-abortion lobby is good people to elect for our cause that is something that will continue to haunt the conservatives going forward it's impossible that it will go away because and there were those who said well joe biden and the democrats playing the abortion card so hard uh, is a risky proposition actually it turned out to be a winning proposition and not a risky proposition and there there is a clear message there Canadian women are even possibly less uh tolerant of the notion that a future federal government wants to play in that movie or could play in that movie uh than than the debate in the u s uh, has demonstrated in the case uh, of American women. they To go back to the, the kinds of people you hang around with, yes, if you're going to hire a director of communications for your party that is unambiguously pro-convoy, who was happy to go around and say, wasn't it great that they hung for eight hours after being asked to cease and desist? You are sending a clear message that that's the kind of people and the kind of stance you're comfortable with. Uh, and, And voters look at that and they say... Gee, you know, this is someone who's friends with a premier allied with a premier in Alberta who wants to take her, uh, or, her, her directions on how to run healthcare in the province from anti-vax, uh, uh, medical, uh, fringe establishments and who is also friends with a premier in Ontario who would do away with labor rights and uh, pile, pile it up and it adds up to not a pretty picture. Bruce what says.
2: The other thing. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Now, Bruce says they're paying attention. I'm not sure they're paying attention. I'm convinced there's a number of them who are saying these are just the usual gatekeeping pundits who are saying all this because the capacity for a party, liberal, conservative, NDP, to deny reality uh, and to live in an echo chamber is really high. And I find that Pierre Poiliev, since he became leader, has been living in an echo chamber. Okay, Bruce, briefly.
2: Yeah. Uh, the one other thing I was going to uh, note that has to do with this director of communications, it, it, which I think will come back.
0: Can, can we just uh, name her? What is it? Sarah Fisher? Sarah Fisher,
2: I believe. Fisher. Um, yeah. I, and I don't know the woman. I don't have anything um, personal to say about her or anything like that, but I did notice this story in press progress about a blog post that she put out some months ago about globalists and the world economic forum. And, the language um, that's used to make that argument is certainly seen by significant numbers of people as, I don't know if you'd say bordering on, uh, well, it's very troublesome language, uh, let me put it that way. It's troublesome if you're trying to keep the uh, the tent that you've got intact in terms of uh, support, and it sounds a bit conspiratorial well it sounds more than a bit conspiratorial and i'm surprised given you know maybe Chantal's right maybe i'm giving them too much credit uh, that they're paying attention and trying to avoid making mistakes but this one looks to me like it could end in tears because the positions are so obvious and so high profile and so associated with this more radicalized version of what conservative means that the world is the ma- is a wash in conspiracies to deny uh regular people the things that they want whatever those those may be uh so i i i've been struck by that but on on the whole i've kind of felt that polyev was doing himself some favors by staying out of the limelight and uh and kind of avoiding contact with the media i don't endorse it as a Kind of a strategy for democracy, but I think it might have been helpful for him so far. But we'll see how that how
0: that continues. Well, he broke out of some of that this week uh, and in the last week, talking uh, a couple of times to the media in general and, and one specific in a in an interview. But let, let me just pick up on a couple of points that you both mentioned in your uh, your opening remarks. First of all, um, from Bruce on the you know uh, on the desire, or the wish, or the hope, or or perhaps even the thought that the uh, Republicans in the United States are going to move on from their, you know, past five years. Um, I, I, would, uh, I would like to believe that as well, but I, I won't believe it till I see somebody of some significance from that party actually stand up and say it. You know, whether it's a Mitch McConnell or a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio or a Mike Pence uh, or a Ron DeSantis actually say it's time to turn the page and move on from the Trump years. And the Trump um, stuff, and you know whether it's uh, social media or conspiracy theories or whatever it is. Until I actually hear somebody say that, which I haven't yet in the, in the opening hours since the uh, midterms of uh, any significance, say that you wonder whether that in fact will happen. Now, sometimes these things take time, but there's also no time like the present to strike a new chord. And because the other guy uh, seems in a bit of a shambles uh, right now, every report we get from from uh, Trump land is that he's you know throwing things at the wall again. Um, so we'll see how that how that plays out. The other point you you talked about was uh, was polling, and you know there's there's no doubt that there's been a lot of criticism, um, and I think probably unduly, uh, because from what I've seen of the looking back at the uh, at the past four weeks of polling data and you know lumping them all together and it's kind of averaging out, it's kind of close to what happened. They kind of more or less within the margin of error. Now the was the commentary in the margin of error uh, error? I don't think so. I mean, there was a lot of commentary on all the networks, not just Fox, but on all of them. Um, suggesting in those last few weeks that this was going to be a blowout for the Republicans. Um, that didn't happen. So it, it, it's, it's been interesting the way that's seen. You warned us last week or two weeks ago, Bruce, that the, the youth vote could make a real difference, and it, it appears that, in fact, it did. And the last thought I'll give, um, and I, I appreciate the time you two are letting me have. To ramble. Oh, well, we
1: you're Great. you're almost done here. Yeah, I am almost <laughs> done,
0: but it's a point. It's a it's one of the statements you made, uh, Chantel. It was a term we have not heard in Canadian politics in seven years, when you said Polyev's wish to get to Twenty Four Sussex Drive, and Twenty Four Sussex Drive. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, but, it, but maybe
1: it, he wants to live there. You never know.
0: Well, then it's the a metaphorical it, one. Yeah. yeah, he better get a tent. Uh, to do that because, as we all know, it hasn't been used in, you know, seven or eight years now. I can remember the day that uh, Justin Trudeau was sworn in. I was doing a documentary on his first day in office and so spent a lot of time with him, including the drive from the Parliament buildings to Rideau Hall where we stopped in the driveway of 24 Sussex because he wanted to walk across uh, into Rideau Hall. And as we pulled into that driveway... I looked at him, I said, are you looking forward to getting back here at some point? He looked at me and said, I don't think I'll ever live here again. And so far, he's right. Uh, It's just sitting there because nobody wants to cough up. Well, I'm sure lots of people could cough up the money, but nobody wants to be associated with having to spend tens of millions of dollars on probably fixing that that place up.
1: I I believe, frankly, that Justin Trudeau does not want to to live there. it does, It's not just a money issue or wearing the cost. It's that he is not going to be raising his kids there. Never going to happen. He never wanted it to happen. And he had a really good excuse. And I, you know, and I'm not saying that as criticism, but I think there is that uh, more so than any of the let's not renovate, let's not fix the official residence. I just want to say something about the commentary mm-hmm. and the impact of the commentary uh, on the midterms. And I am not doubting the good faith of many of those who made the commentary. But as you were talking, I was reminded of an, an instance in this country, 1995 and on the Quebec referendum, where... The the no side, the federalist side, over the last week of that campaign really wanted the commentary to say that sovereignty was going to win. And why did they really want that? Because they rightly assumed that the more you said it was real, the more people would think again, as they did. Uh, they, they, I remember strategists from the no committee insisting that the media was cheating uh, by not publishing poll numbers that showed that the yes was well ahead. So I, I, that, the, all that commentary probably makes the commentary industry look bad, but it has, I believe, achieved a purpose, and that is drive up turnout uh, for the Democrats and possibly drive down turnout for the Republicans on the assumption that they didn't need the votes. Right.
0: Wait, what's, your take on, yeah, what's your take on that, Bruce, on the sort of commentary versus polls?
2: Yeah, I think in this case, the commentary uh, sort of drove a little bit of the polling, the way the polling was interpreted a bit. I, I You know, it felt to me like a lot of commentators had been so bruised by underestimating the importance of trump and trumpism for so many years now that the last thing they wanted to do was to make that mistake again and it became easier to just gravitate towards this soft biden's not you know his numbers are bad the economy's bad he's going to do badly Uh, the out party always does badly but he's so old and he's so uh Uninspiring and the economy and the economy and the economy. Um, and I felt like, as people were describing the polling, you know, there's a range of pollsters out there, and some of them are more Democratic leaning and some of them more Republican leaning, and then some of them are right down the middle, but all of them get kind of bunched together. And the narrative that people were stringing a little bit, at least in the commentary I saw, was uh, well, the Democrats were looking good a few months ago, but more recently the Republicans have been on the rise. I don't think it was there if you really looked hard at the motivation factor, obviously for younger people and for women. But I also don't think that anybody was really measuring how fed up people were getting independent voters with Trumpism. And with the the furthest reaches of it, this competition of the Lorraine uh, the, the the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Ted Cruzs and the Ron DeSantis's and the Donald Trumps and the Donald Trump juniors, the list goes on and on. These were the major figures that people were exposed to as the voices of the Republican establishment for the last year. And it made for great, explosive dynamic coverage it was catnip and clicknip if that's a word <laughs> but a lot of people would have in the middle said this party is about itself it's not really about us anymore and this kind of cult of who's the new trump is the old trump still the best trump that was a discussion about the republican dynamic internally and i think it it sort of either bored or it it turned off and pushed away a bunch of voters and nobody that I saw was really measuring that effect.
0: Okay. We're gonna pause here. Take a I quick I think that break. means you both agree. So that's that's yeah, great. We're oh we
1: you ran the clock.
0: Yeah, we 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 think that you really well you ran the clock, but you managed to change your position more in line with ours. And uh yeah, yeah absolutely what I did, you're in. Huh? <laughs> No dummy here. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back we're gonna talk China. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge on Sirius XM, channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Or, because it's Friday, like Wednesday, you also have the option of the video podcast, the video, the makings Of the bridge, the makings of good talk. It's all available for you right there on uh, my YouTube channel. So if you go to my uh, bio on Twitter or Instagram up there in the corner, um, you can just click on that and uh, you can subscribe. Costs nothing, and you'll get it automatically every time we do a video. Um, Okay, next topic: Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson, with us as always. And um, when it was 1970 that Pierre Trudeau, the government of that day, recognized the People's Republic of China. Um, and it was one, one of the first nations in, in the West to do so. A couple of years later, I think it was 73, Trudeau went to China, one of the first Western leaders to do so, which launched a whole um, era of China- Canada relationship, especially on the trade front. In those days, uh, we were the big beneficiary of the trade balance between the two countries. They were buying a lot of our stuff. We weren't buying much of anything from them. Um, That gradually changed over time. Um, We all remember the Jean Chrétien running up the Great Wall of China. And if you've ever done that, you'll know that it's very hard. It's hard enough to walk up some of the stretches of the Great Wall of China, but Craig Chiam was kind of ran up and he was bicycling around Beijing and he was had in tow with him a lot of Canadian business leaders. And he initiated quite the trade uh, arrangement with uh, China and Canada. That has continued on to some degree over time, not never to quite that degree. Um, but some things have changed. Clearly, uh, CSIS has been overly concerned, not overly, but has been concerned about the relationship between China and Canada, especially when it came to China getting its kind of influence into Canadian politics and sometimes very directly with particular MPs and apparently also in the election campaigns. All of this to the point where the opposition, Uh, for some time, has been really pushing the government to do something about the China relationship. Um, To the point uh, where this past week, uh, Melanie Jolie, the um, Minister of, I still call it, Foreign Affairs, but Melanie Jolie is warning Canadian firms of risks of business with China. She's put out a new policy. It's on Indo-Pacific relations. Uh, So it's more than just China, but the headlines seem to have been pulled out of this, that it's clearly a lot about China. So where are we at in this relationship? How significant is what's going on? And there are there's some hints that there's some tension within cabinet over some of this stuff. Um, and what do we know, if anything, about that? Who would like to start us off on this, the question of China? Uh, well, Chantal.
1: Now I've, been, I've been watching all this for, for a number of years uh, And in particular, uh, over the Chrétien era also spent quite a bit of time in Asia over the years. Uh, So I think the first thing we or the first takeaway I would take from what you said about Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien is that at this juncture, we now know that one of the, the rationales that were offered for embracing and engaging with China economically beyond the fact that there was profit to be made, was that as China's economic performance improved, so would its uh, affection for democracy and democratic values uh, and respect for human rights. And that is not at all what has happened. That has been demonstrated to be a total fallacy it is possible to run a prosperous economic superpower without having any respect for human rights or for democracy and, to, and casting itself and it as a virtue, which is basically where we are today. Now, the, the, the warnings about Chinese interference in the democratic system of this country date back to the Harper era they are not recent this has been a simmering issue that cabinet and prime ministers have been briefed on for a long time but the the the, the business lobby in particular in this country uh, had as a mantra you must engage with china our economy now depends on it and the the other f- fallacy partly fallacy was that the us was going to be in permanent decline economically and we needed to hitch our wagons uh, or diversify, Uh, we hitched our wagons uh, quickly and China, it was impossible to bypass China. The tensions in cabinet uh, have more to do with some ministers wanting to go even further in decoupling Canada's economy from China than the actual statement put forward by Mélanie Jolie. And that means there has been a complete reversal on the part of this government from how they saw the file, and the prime minister in particular, to where we are today. When Justin Trudeau came, he was all about engaging uh, and promoting more ties with China. I think in part because of the the, the fact that his father Uh, walked there before him. Uh, And I'm not even saying that as a criticism, but um, I think he was seeing China with uh, the lenses that were already outdated when he came into office. And it took the two Michaels to kind of send the message that this was unsustainable and it absolutely had to change. Now, what that means for China is they've basically turned Canada's most China-friendly governing party into a party that now shares the same suspicions uh, to almost the same degree as the conservatives. There there, there will not be a reversal on that in government. They have also, over China over the past decade, managed to turn Canadian public opinion uh, against uh, any rapprochement or even any maintenance of many of our links to China. Uh, and I think And I don't want to be pessimistic, but when I look at what's happening, when I look at this policy statement, but also what's happening around the globe, I think to myself, we are uh, bracing for uh, a war uh, in that region, uh, where we will end up having to take a side, and that side is going to be the side of Taiwan. Uh, And the economic shocks from that, we will endure one way or another, so better start preparing for them, even if it's late in the game. Bruce
2: well, um I'm glad that Chantal didn't want to be pessimistic uh, but <laughs> I'm gonna pick up the conversation and sidestep the war in Taiwan because I think everything that Chantal said is is absolutely accurate. I think that the hopefulness that we had about a bigger China could be better for everybody in the world um, and that by getting bigger and more prosperous China would embrace more Western um not necessarily values, but kind of operating ideas in terms of how their economy would work and how their diplomacy would work. And we've seen exactly the opposite, that bigger is definitely not better in terms of its China's impact and role with the rest of the world, rather than westernizing in ways that might make it easier for us to deepen cooperation and deepen trade What we've seen is that China has emerged as uh, intent on disrupting Western democracies. Uh, It has far more tools and resources at its disposal than Russia does. Um, And that the combined uh, impact of these two uh, nations is uh, really worrying. So I I felt like the uh, speech that uh, Ms. Jolie laid out was... Was important. I thought it was useful that what she tried to do in that speech and often gets kind of left aside in politics is people sort of talk at the expert level. They don't really explain what's going on and what the rationale is and what the thought processes are as policies being developed. And I thought that there was a good amount of that and, and more is always better because we need to build up uh, Canadian public knowledge. Of what's going on here, because these those kind of institutional memories are, are are short, and they're not generally being renewed in terms of the way that people consume news now. So good that she talked and explained um, the context. Also good that um, she talked about the economic issues and and implicitly or explicitly acknowledge that there's a tension between wanting to do business with China and being clear-eyed about the risks. I think that's the language that she used. I think that was well-chosen language. I think she said, it's not our intent to tell businesses not to do business with China. It is our role to tell them what to be aware of, what to be careful about, and to and to recognize that that relationship isn't necessarily going to be stable. And the last point about her speech that I, I, I liked is that... Our politics tends to want to get really shouty about china uh as opposed to kind of deliberate what can we actually do especially since the u.s is a bit of a question mark in terms of the role that it's going to play less so with biden but who knows uh with desantis or if trump comes back trump this week was saying i like president xi he i call him king He's a great guy, a great friend of mine. He's going to be president for life. This is not what we expect or have ever uh, been able to see coming out of leading politicians in the United States. So that's a measure of uncertainty. So within that context, what Canada can say that doesn't sound like we're shaking our fist at the moon to no particular effect um, is is a bit of a challenge. I thought some of the language there was well put, that we will cooperate with China when we must. And we will challenge China when we ought to. Um, And a lot of that obviously has to do with working with allies in that respect. And I thought that was good too.
0: I like, uh, I too like what Chantal said about what was really behind uh, so much of that opening up in the 1970s. It wasn't just about trade. It was about um, trying to show the Chinese the way to a uh, you know a, a better economy, um, and therefore hoping that that would lead to more freedoms and more democracy within uh, within China, uh, that was the great dream always of Deng Xiaoping when he finally. Or, or th- that was the great dream that many had of Deng Xiaoping when he uh, finally achieved power after his various uh, re-education periods under Mao Zedong, but when you get through to June of 1989 when when Deng was still around and we saw what democracy meant for the Chinese then with the slaughter in Tiananmen Square. And, and then, it, you know, it really was, as Chantel points out, it was only you know a couple of years later that they had Great Chan running up and down the, the Great Wall of China as if nothing had happened in Tiananmen Square. And we watched China explode with new economic power, but the freedoms weren't there and the continuing discussion about Taiwan, which continues to this day to the point where, you know, it's not just Chantel who's saying this, but many of the great defense experts around the world really feel that more than anywhere, that could be the the place where the next, you know, world conflict uh, begins um, as a result of Taiwan. So you wonder when they're kind of, going to get it you know it's right too that CSIS was warning Harper it was a little different than the today one today it's it's about they were interfering with the election process those days I remember because I was involved in doing that story um, it was more about did they have in their pocket some Canadian politicians Um, and so that was kind of a, a, a different angle but nevertheless the curve has never slighted from this fact that China, China bad, <laughs> you know Canada good, and this isn't working out. Um, so it's interesting to see how this is playing. How much of this is because the, the the government of today has has come around to this position, or because they feel pressured by um, the conservatives who have not never let go of the China angle in these last couple of years, and Polyev especially has been hard on it.
1: There, after after nineteen eighty nine, what you described as a hope turned into a convenient rationale, yes. a spin line uh, to justify continuing along the same track for economic benefits. Basically, that that is what it is. And to be fair, the Chinese government never sent Canada signals that the take on. Uh, the human rights, democratic uh, evolution is, is happening. It, were, there were never any signals along those lines. It was always the opposite. It, it's, it's a case of going somewhere with eyes wide shut, literally. Uh, that we And of course, we have been on over those Team Canada missions and going forward. Now, it's easy these days to say that everything that the Government of Canada does is in reaction to the, uh, to the conservatives. But I do believe that what happened this week was driven by the two Michaels, uh, more so than that by Pierre Poilievre's advent. And by the way, I do find that, uh, on foreign affairs. I'm still waiting to hear anything from Pierre Poiliev that would amount to a prime minister-in-waiting's foreign policy speech. He's been very, very silent on everything from Russia and Ukraine to, to China. But um, what is certainly noteworthy is that this speech, again, like Christian Freeland's speech in Washington earlier in the fall, would never have been speeches that were given by top uh, high-profile Canadian ministers of Justin Trudeau even five years ago. Uh, and, and that tells you how fast time has finally caught up with the government.
2: I, I wanted to add, Peter, that Chantal made a point about public opinion towards China, and and you, you talked about whether the Liberals were reacting to the Conservatives. Uh, my experience with the public opinion about China, the Canadian pu- public opinion, is that... People were never super enthused about the idea of free trade with China as one kind of surrogate for how close should the relationship be. But they were open to the idea. They're a little bit more close to the idea now. But the reason I put it that way is I don't think there's any real public opinion uh, developing on this that would make the liberals wary about the conservatives gaining some big advantage on it. So I don't think the calculus was really... You know, the Conservatives are kind of winning votes from us by being more full-throated in their criticism of China. Uh, I think the Conservatives have tended to think that there are Chinese-Canadian communities that they are um, successful with, uh, with the position that they've taken, and I don't really have enough evidence to uh, come to a conclusion about the the, the reliability of that hypothesis or, or not. But I, I do think that... Um, Chantal's point about Pierre Poliev makes me kind of think about the fact that he so far seems to be betting heavily that uh, frustration and fed upness with Trudeau and inflation are all that he will need, uh, in addition to what he's already got by co opting the People's Party vote. Um, and he may be right about that. But if inflation sort of starts to go away, if the deficit sort of starts to go away as a trenchant criticism of trudeau and that's partly how the the liberals kind of present themselves uh, from a fiscal standpoint not necessarily the hard numbers of it then he's kind of left with just how fed up are people with trudeau and conservatives have always tended to overestimate how much people don't like uh, justin trudeau and that to me is still the case we're still looking at a number like 51 52 that says I really care about getting change. And those people are not all going to vote conservative. So I think that, that, that PolyEv is going to need to develop policy in this area. And people are going to be looking for something that feels a little bit more uh, meaty and thoughtful, not necessarily because they can judge all the details of the policy, but because they can tell the difference between that kind of policy and just a uh, a kind of a arm-waving and shouty kind of rhetorical Uh, attack on china with the assumption that that's going to do any good
1: i don't want to shock the pollster uh on this (laughs) on this conversation but i have an anecdotal measure of how fed up people are with prime ministers which is uh how much people talk to me about them and in what terms and i have to say that uh, and i know i live in montreal but still i Meet more Francophones than Anglophones, who tend to be sympathetic to the Liberal Party. I have to say that Justin Trudeau doesn't isn't even on the radar of discontent compared to everything I was hearing about Stephen Harper or Jean Chrétien. It's 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 non-existent. I, people do not stop me as they did with Harper and Chrétien to say, "How are we going to get rid of these people?" doesn't happen Uh, i know it's not a scientific measure but it is striking uh that he doesn't seem to elicit the same visceral and i know if i were in alberta things would be different i understand that but you do need to win elections in ontario and quebec to become the prime minister
0: and it's not just you know. To be fair, it's not just in Alberta. Uh, there are other parts in English Canada where it's uh, it's pretty ugly out there, including in you know Ontario and southwestern Ontario. Uh, I've only got a couple of minutes left, I want to touch on the on the uh, federal provincial relations for a minute. But Bruce, you want to make one last quick point on this before we take our final break?
2: Well, there. Look, there are uh, no question that there are some people who feel quite strongly. But I've been tracking that number since. 2015, or even before for Trudeau, the very negative number is definitely up, but it is still definitely a minority and more like 30%. So that's not nothing, Peter, I agree with you, it's out there. But I don't think it's reasonable to say there are big chunks of the country beyond Alberta where he's really disliked. That's not what I see in our numbers anyway. So So uh, two to one, the
1: unscientific meets science there we go, Peter. <laughs>
0: okay. We're going to take this last break. Back right after this. And welcome back. We're uh, here for our final segment of Good Talk for this week. Bruce Anderson, Chantelle bear with us. Uh, Chantelle made a point the other day Uh, which I'd like to get her kind of quick analysis, the big overview, uh, which basically suggests that federal-provincial relations right now on the first minister level are not good. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff out there, bad feelings uh, between, you know, the personalities at the top of of various governments. Um, Do you want to give us that rundown, Chantelle, and tell us why we should care about that?
1: And I probably said that uh, before the prime minister went after Premier Ford in Ontario for using the notwithstanding clause to try to avoid uh, a strike in the province's schools. So uh, which, you know, the, the Ford Trudeau relationship has probably been one of the better ones. Uh, and, and I don't think that the well is poisoned, but certainly a lot of, of flack has been going back and forth. Over the past week, we've seen the prime minister who has usually been as reserved in his comments about premiers as he has been over the Trump era about the American president um, show a little less of that restraint. He was in New Brunswick where we blamed Premier Higgs for appointing someone who has made a career of opposing bilingualism to a committee to review bilingualism in that province. He's gone after François Legault for sending Quebecers checks as promised in the campaign, while asking for more money for health care. He's gone after uh, Premier Ford over the notwithstanding clause, obviously. He's um, well set to uh, have things to say about the premiers of Alberta and Saskatchewan and their so-called, quote-unquote, sovereignty bills uh, in those provinces. All of that to say that uh, it's not even... Uh, A source that needs to tell you that the relationship between the federal the prime minister and the premiers is souring. You can see it on a daily basis. But I think what we saw this week, uh, which was a meeting of health ministers, where I'm assuming the mission of the federal health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, was to come out with enough progress or signs of progress that he could say, This paves the way to a meeting and a discussion between the prime minister and the premiers over funding, actually was torpedoed uh, by the premiers. And why do I say that? Because clearly the premiers instructed the health ministers to tool down and say we will not uh, be making progress here until the prime minister has a conversation with our bosses, the premiers, and what they want to talk about is sign a check with no strings attached. There are merits to both positions, and that is not what I'm trying to say. But I think some of the stuff we saw from Justin Trudeau this week uh, were a result of anger and frustration at the premiers uh, over healthcare. The feeling the federal government came away from Vancouver, the Vancouver meeting, fe- feeling that it had gotten played. Does that advance the healthcare conversation or is it promising uh, for uh, what is happening in the healthcare system and for solutions to those problems? I think that there will be solutions, but you should not find them at the federal provincial table because clearly we are witnessing what in French we call a dialogue of the deaf.
0: Bruce? Uh,
2: you know, I was reminded um, Listening to Chantal and uh, seeing the note that she sent us the other day of the fact that Pierre Trudeau, as I recall his time in politics, some of what worked best for him in terms of building political support was when he challenged the provinces where he used that language of, you know, the federal government shouldn't be the head waiter to the provinces. He used that as a cudgel against uh, Joe Clark, Um, and it meant something to people. The idea that there is a tension between these levels of government and the federal government shouldn't always kind of lie down and acquiesce to whatever it is that the provinces have to say, because that would create too much of a patchwork version of Canada, inconsistent health or education standards and that sort of thing. But by the same token, some of what was most problematic for Pierre Trudeau was the amount of conflict that he seemed to be constantly in with uh, not just with some premiers, but with uh, others in in society, whether it was uh, labor or business. From time to time, it just seemed like there was a there was a little too much pugilism in him uh, some days, and just the right amount other days. And some of that was about him, and some of that was about the mood of the country. Fast forward to Justin Trudeau, and I feel like um, for the most part, he hasn't been very pugilistic. Uh, there have been a lot more people in his caucus and his cabinet, I think, who at different times over the last several years would have wanted him to be more um, aggressive in taking some of the positions, but he doesn't generally play that way. I think he believes that he gets more done by working behind the scenes and taking the, the hit for maybe not being that expressive about his frustration. So what he's doing now on health care, I think, is... Um probably necessary. It does seem as though there are big, big problems in the health system. They're hugely expensive to deal with. And that having some measure of accountability isn't something that's happening consistently within the provincial jurisdictions. Ontario, where I live, is a pretty good example where you've got the premier saying <laughs> Well, you've got the Ontario government basically saying we can't figure out what happened with the $4 billion that uh, we were given to help deal with some of the COVID pressures. And meanwhile, you've got ICU problems uh, that that are kind of bursting. Our hospitals at the seams, so I think it's the right time, probably politically, for Justin Trudeau to be a little bit more aggressive with the provinces. I don't know that it, as a political strategy, to do it on too many issues too often, is a good idea. But I think that there's probably some room uh, for Canadians to hear that in the sense that that tension is being put both ways.
0: All right, um, we're gonna have to leave it at that. It's a discussion I know we're gonna keep having. We've had it a number of times. Uh, already in the in you know basically this fall on healthcare, uh, but you're right the the problems keep piling up and some of the stories coming out of the healthcare system right now, especially as it comes to young kids, um, pediatric ICUs uh, overflowing in in many parts of the country, uh, and uh, issues that uh, seem unsolvable, whether they're aggressive or non-aggressive. Um, these First Ministers have got to find a solution to all this somehow um, and soon. All right, we're going to leave it at that for this week. Chantelle Hébert, Bruce Anderson, thank you much, Lee, very much. And, uh, we, uh, quite a bit. Have a, yeah, quite a bit, yes, please. Um, have a great weekend. And all of you out there have a great weekend as well. We'll talk to you again on Monday.